and take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew, the 7th chapter. Matthew chapter 7. As we look through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're really in the conclusion of the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount answers the question, what does a Christian look like? You know, we can attend seminars, and we can read books, and uh, look at all of men's opinions in this regard, but nothing speaks with the clarity and simplicity as the Sermon of Christ. And yet, as clear as it is, we also find this portion to be the most devastating sermon we've ever heard. Christ gives no wiggle room, if you please, for excuses or a platform for our reasoning around God's law and, uh, or validation of our evading the demands of the gospel. Christ speaks and we must examine ourselves in light of his message this morning or else we delude ourselves. Now, I do not know a better remedy to the modern heretical practice of easy believism, as it is called, or decisional regeneration, than this particular passage. We have drifted from the purity of the gospel for the appeal to the masses. And this is not a matter of preferring one method above another, we have callously declared masses of people to be Christian because they have repeated a little prayer at the end of a quick gospel presentation and because they have made their way to the front of a church after the preacher manipulated them with clever stories and tactics. And then they are told to pray a prayer and they then would be saved. Some of those that prayed that prayer were told that they were now saved and because they prayed that prayer. They were told not to doubt it. And so dutifully, some of that number profess to be Christian because of praying a prayer, but they have never known Christ or the new birth. Perhaps there are some within the sound of my voice this morning who have fallen into the modern trap of professing yourselves to be Christians, and yet the evidence stands contrary to your profession. And yet you hold out the hope that maybe, just maybe, the preacher or teacher or parent was right in declaring you to be saved. And so you have closed your eyes to the teachings of Christ for fear that it will expose what is really in your heart. And that is the purpose of the last four pictures of the Sermon on the Mount. Each one will challenge the ancient and modern notions that Intellectual assent or mere belief in religious faith is adequate on the final day. Each depicts two types of people, two ways of life, two sets of belief, two practices in life, and two worldviews. One leads to life, the other to destruction. There's no place given for middle ground or compromise position. Only those who do the Father's world will, Jesus declares, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now while the, these verses have been misunderstood and even abused 
through centuries, the context of the Sermon on the Mount helps us to understand precisely what Christ meant in this passage. And I want you to examine yourself and your own life in light of what Jesus Christ said. It says in chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The first thing I want you to notice this morning is the de declaration made. The declaration made. Jesus Christ sets the record straight that many professing to be Christians are not Christians at all. There's a difference of professing to be a Christian and the possessing of the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. It's a sobering reality. As a pastor, I have had discussions with people that steadfastly claim to be Christian in spite of their unchristian lifestyle. Even though I point to them, uh, point uh, them to passages that explain Christians being new creatures in Christ, old things passed away, behold, all things have become new, or Christians that would have the fruit of the Spirit, they will not hear of it. Because of their profession, they maintain that they are Christians. But Jesus Christ declares that our professions are worthless without evidence of kingdom character and practice. Notice, first of all, the divine limits that are set. Divine limits are set. A profession of Christ does not necessarily equate to reality. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. You will be considering Christ's Sermon on the Mount that teaches us what a kingdom citizen looks like, how they act, what they value, and wh where they're going. And Jesus cuts through the superficiality of so much popular Christianity and reinforces that true Christians have substance to their character and to the behavior. The mere use, or should I say, abuse of Christ's name, Lord, Lord, the praying of prayers in Jesus' name or serving in Jesus' name or singing songs in Jesus' name does not mean that we are a Christian. Christ takes a future look at the kingdom in all of its fullness and explains that when he declared, narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it, he was not kidding. He reinforces that teaching by showing that a person may appear to be perfectly orthodox and even active in areas of Christian service and still not be a kingdom citizen. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize that around one-third of the world's population claims to be Christian? That includes every type of so-called Christian group. One in three people that you meet would say to Christ, 
Lord, Lord. They would acknowledge Christ's existence. They would say, He is Savior. And they will even profess Him to be their Lord. Yet it does not take much imagination to realize that only a relatively few of the massive number that have entered into a real relationship with Christ. I think of one particular denomination I will not name, but it has uh, claims to have 16 million members. On every given, any given Sunday, less than half of that number can be found in church. Someone closely examined the membership of the five largest churches of this denomination in a particular area and discovered that they had a total non-resident membership. Uh, they had a larger total of non-resident membership than their average Sunday school attendance. You see, people want to be able to call themselves Christians regardless of their character, regardless of their lifestyle, and many have been accommodated all too readily. Divine limits have been set here by the Lord Jesus. I want you to know, secondly, kingdom character expressed. Kingdom character expressed. Jesus sets the limit of kingdom citizens as he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That is kingdom character expressed in daily life. The language here is very forceful. He that doeth the will of my Father uses a present tense verb showing that this is an ongoing practice of his life. It's not just a one day a week coming to church and then the rest of the week living like I want to. It's an ongoing practice. Doing the will of God every day of the week, not just Sunday. The thing that drives the believer and stays with him through thick and thin is the desire and the practice to, of obedience to the Father. What does Christ mean by the will of my Father? He's referring precisely what he has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard what it has been said. He said, I say unto you. Over and over and over, we heard that, that phrase there. You heard it, what has been said, I say unto you. You see, Jesus is not light on obedience. Grace does not exclude obedience, but it assures it. Some people say, oh, we live in the in the, the age of grace, and we don't have to follow all those rules and regulations and commands. Oh, no. Grace includes obedience. In Luke's parallel passage, chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus upbraids all claiming to be Christian without corresponding obedience. He said, and why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? The Christian evidence of genuineness is not loud profession, nor spectacular spiritual triumphs, nor protests of great spiritual experience. Rather, his chief characteristic is obedience. True believers perform the will of the Father, and it's consistent with their prayer that Jesus taught in chapter 6, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But does this not contradict grace, someone might ask? 
As a matter of fact, some under the guise of teaching grace alone deny the necessity of obedience as the character of the Christian. Submission to Christ as Lord is considered an option, not a necessity. There's a word for that. It's called antinomianism. That's a big $65 word for lawlessness. No law. Has nothing to do with the biblical teaching of grace. You see, this is not salvation by works. The contrast is not between merit and grace, but between profession and a way of life. If people really trust Christ for salvation, their lives will no longer be self-centered. That they belong to the good tree will be manifest by the fruit that they bear. The answer, the writer of of Hebrews affirms this. He said, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. And that idea of serve there means serve the Lord even as the priests serve the Lord. It's a a word that means to serve in worship, to serve before the Lord. And those uh, whom Christ has saved, who have proffered the gift of grace, are saved to live unto the Lord right after the most quoted passage about salvation being by grace, Paul concludes, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Jesus Himself declared that the proof of one's love for Him was not allowed profession, but it was obedience. If you love Me, Keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And again, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and we will make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father which sent me. John 14, verses 23 and 24. The reason for anyone's salvation is the work of Christ and the grace of God shown to him. But the evidence that he has received the grace of God is that he that doeth the will of my Father. There's no separation between justification and sanctification. This passage calls for each one of us to examine ourselves. And of course, we see our sinfulness and our inadequacy. None of us has found perfection. But can you honestly see that your desire and practice is to do the will of God, which are the commands He has given to us in His Word? Notice, first of all, the declaration made. Secondly, this morning, the defining day. The defining day. Notice verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, 
Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. So much of the New Testament points to that day, which Christ refers to in our text. Many will say to me in that day. Now I understand this to be in the Greek text very emphatic, pointing to the day that is set by the Father in which the secrets of men's hearts will be judged and all the false professors of Christ will be exposed. There's no contradiction between grace and obedience in that day. Just after he explained, for we walk not by faith, or we walk by faith not by sight, the Apostle Paul soberly reminds us that how believers are motivated by remembering that we have a day of reckoning with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, Wherefore we labor that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it is good or bad. You see, pleasing God by obedience with a view to that day is the lifestyle of a Christian, a true Christian. Notice here a personal reckoning with Christ. A personal reckoning with Christ. Now, notice how personal Christ makes this this statement here. Many will say to me in that day. Now, one might ask, when is that day? Well, it's most likely what we know is the great white throne judgment, which will only be a judgment for non-believers. There is the judgment seat of Christ, which I just read about from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, which really is only for believers. And that will not be a time of judgment concerning your salvation or whether we go to heaven or to hell. We will be judged by our works while we were here on earth at the judgment seat of Christ. So that day here in Matthew chapter 7 must be for the unsaved who will appear before God and they are going to have to give an account for what they did with Jesus Christ. Did they accept the salvation or did they reject it? Of course they rejected it, and even though they were going to try to convince God that they deserve heaven because of all the good things they did in Jesus' name, and they will be denied. They will even use, or again I should say, abuse the names, the name of Christ, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Yes. These who profess Christ used His name to carry out their own self-centered purposes. They preached their sermons and cast out demons and performed miracles, just like King Saul and Judas Iscariot and the sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19. But they never trusted the Lord for their salvation. They used their version of Christianity for social purposes or for business promotions or for protection for their families from the ravages of the world or self-aggrandizement. And so Christ, the judge, calls them into account and they array their excuses and they make their professions. They offer their spiritual vocabulary, but Christ stops them and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. We not only see here this defining day, a personal reckoning with Christ, but we see self-delusion 
self-delusion by many. How does this happen? It's rather impressive that not only do these that Christ notes have spiritual vocabulary, but they have also been involved in visible acts of ministry. Like King Saul, lived a self-centered life, they prophesied. Like the sons of Sceva that cast out devils and demons until the demons turned on them and chased them down the street naked, they cast out demons. Like Judas Iscariot, they followed Christ and participated in His miracles. They performed miracles in Jesus' name. And Jesus warned of such. He said, For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch as that if it were possible, they would, should de- deceive the very elect. Matthew 24, 24. It is what Paul warned concerning the deception of a man of sin who will work the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the, tru- the love of truth that they might be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10. The activism of preaching, the mysticism of exorcism, and the pragmatism of miracle working amounts to nothing before the face of Christ who knows the thoughts and the intent of the heart. Yet more people than we can number, perhaps even some among us today, lay claim to some area of Christian activity, some kind of mysticism or pragmatism as they're standing before Christ on that day. But none of these things are evidence that we know Christ. Self-delusion is the major issue that threatens any of us. It begins with a mistaken view of justification that is, uh, that it is only legal and not, does not necessarily have moral effects. Now, if it is legal, mind you, as we have noted, justification always includes sanctification or the process of holiness. Those whom Christ saves, He also sanctifies. Without sanctification, no one will see the Lord, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. This self-delusion is strengthened by involvement and activity in Christian circles. It might be within a church or a denomination or even a parachurch organization. And we're not speaking of evil deeds. We're talking about good things, good deeds that have been become a substitute for trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. And so instead of relying upon the grace of God in Christ that results in obedient submission to Christ, the self-deluded professor of Christ relies on external deeds of busy activity. You know, there are so many things that people can plunge into today that are worthwhile in themselves, but they've become substitutes for Christianity. Remember what Jesus points out is lacking? He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Activities, projects, causes become the focal point of life. And this deluded professor 
considers these things to be evidence of his faith. Just look, I'm going to church every Sunday. I'm involved in my church. I sing in the choir. I do this. I do that. I, I can just list a long list of things that I'm doing. I must be a Christian. But Jesus reminds us that it's simple obedience of the Father's will that demonstrates his faith. And to help us think through and examine our hearts, let me identify some of the areas that could be very easily become points of self-delusion because they are all good things. There's the danger, first of all, of thinking that you're a Christian because of what you oppose. Now, there's a very broad, theologically broad base of opposition to any a number of things. You oppose abortion. You oppose social injustice. Do you oppose racism or socialism? Do you oppose the debasing teaching of evolution? You know, one can think that he's a Christian because he's joined the bandwagon with other professing believers in such noble and needed crusades. On the other hand, because of defending certain truths or rights, we can think we are Christians. It might be a rational defense of the gospel by apologetics. It might be defending gospel preaching or religious freedom or the right to pray and uh, read the Bible in public arenas. It might be the defense of some system of theological thought. These are noble causes to defend but they are not a substitute for doing my Father's will. Some think because they have an intense interest in theology or Bible doctrine or church history, they are Christians. But you know, as valuable as that is and wonderful as it is, it may become a subtle danger and temptation to the soul. A man can be so absorbed in the intellectual apprehension that he forgets that he is alive and he forgets other people. And the very thing hap that very thing happened during the Reformation and the Puritan errors when barren intellectualism took over the, the neglect of the soul. Probably the biggest danger field in this regard is the seminary community where students pursue biblical academic, uh, Bible academically and may without realizing it fail to apply it to their own needs. Now, I'm all for education, all for Christian education, even seminary work. But they must be careful. We must be careful. Some have a pet interest. Maybe it's Bible prophecy or world events. Perhaps you've known people who've been enamored with this uh, interest in prophecy. And that was all they wanted to talk about. That's all they wanted to read about. And soon they had no interest in the gospel, but only wanted pro uh, prophecy speculations. I had a man who attended my church in Indiana when I was preaching through Daniel. He says, oh, I just love to hear the preaching on prophecy. I never saw him any other time, but he'd come only during those, those, uh, those uh, sessions. You know, some of us have an interest in listening to sermons. I hope you have an interest in it. That's why you're here today. <laughs> Maybe you like to fill your notebooks with uh, interesting quotes and Bible facts, and I think note taking notes is good. It helps us to remember what we've heard. But if we're just filling up book after book of notes, 
and Bible facts and, and answers to Bible trivia. And we don't have a fear and tremble, trembling before the God of Scripture. Then perhaps our focus is wrong. I think, I hope you get the point. Anything can become a substitute for a faith that leads you to continually do the will of the Father in heaven. Have there been some interest, even some good interests, that have captured your heart and your mind? Does Christ know you as one of His own? Do you hear His voice and follow Him as His sheep? So we notice, first of all, the declaration made. We secondly have seen the defining day. Thirdly, and conclusion here, the proclamation of Christ. And the closing words here in verse 23 are very emphatic. He says, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. I will profess unto them, or I will declare to them, I will proclaim with all authority and finality, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work, or you practice iniquity or lawlessness. The point is clear that there is no excuse, no rationalization or bargaining that will change the judge's decision. First of all, never means never. If you stand before Christ in that day and you try to come up with a whole list of things that you were involved with and you did this and this and it was all good things and you did it in Christ's name, but you failed to do the Father's will. You failed to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He's going to say, I never knew you. And never means never. This is not a case of having a Christian, uh, being a Christian and then losing salvation. Some have said uh, that that's uh, the case here, but no, this is not what he's talking about. The word implies not a general recognition, but a personal intimate knowledge, the knowledge of a relationship. He's going to say, I never had a relationship with you. You never had a relationship with me. He never recognized them for what they claimed to be. And it is evidenced by their work or their practice of iniquity or lawlessness. He does not speak of an occasional error, but consistent wrongdoing, a life that is bent on following one's own will and desire in spite of what God has commanded. Do the commands of Christ mean more to you than any of your own personal pleasures and pursuits? Never means never. And then there's a final separation. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Christ gives the sentence here. The use of the present imperative, depart or go away from me, intensifies this and forever departing from Christ, never able to draw near, never to see or to feel the effects of righteousness, forever enveloped in the Results of lawlessness. This is one command of Christ that every rebel will obey. They will have no choice. The Lord, the judge, will speak and the most stubborn rebel will obey as he enters into eternal doom. Now it's true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience 
But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men who are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in man's life inevitably results in obedience. I believe any other view of grace cheapens grace. It turns into something that's unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace preaches church membership without rigorous church discipline. Cheap grace uh, preaches discipleship without obedience. It preaches blessing without persecution. It preaches joy without righteousness. It result it preaches results without obedience. You see, in the entire history of Christianity, there has has there ever been another generation that has so many nominal Christians? Nominal Christians. They call themselves Christians today. People say, Oh yes, I'm a Christian but so few are really obedient. And where nominal Christianity is compounded by spectacular profession, it especially is likely to manufacture a false assurance. Someone has said that 81% of Americans believe in the existence of a real, literal heaven. Almost that many expect to go there immediately when they die. Will they? Only if they've trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Unless they come to God through Jesus Christ, they will never be saved. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me, or cometh unto the Father, but by me. This morning I want you to know that I do not have the ear of 81% of Americans. I realize that. However, I trust I have your ear this morning. Where do you stand with the Lord Jesus? Do you think you're saved? Do you hope that you'll go to heaven when you die? What are you basing that hope on this morning? You know, if there's any, the slightest doubt in your heart that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, that you have a relationship with Him, you need to come and get that settled this morning. Some of you may be lost. Some of you may have been depending upon, you know, I have been in church without fail, Sunday after Sunday. I have been in the choir. I have been a deacon. I have been a Sunday school teacher. I have been all of these things, but never had a relationship with Jesus Christ. You, th- you say, is that possible, preacher? Yes. I've heard of preachers getting saved. And the invitation is given, you need to get out of your seat. You need to make your way to Jesus before it's too late. He could be calling you to come this morning. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Our Father in heaven, this morning we are confronted with an evaluation of our lives before you, and we pray, Lord, again that there is someone here that has never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe their trust and their faith has been in a church, or maybe it's been in a in uh, their parents' salvation, or their uh, their good works, or their involvement, their activity. But it's never never been in Christ because their life was not evidence. doing the will of the Father, which is in heaven. Lord, I pray that if there's someone like that this morning, that today would be the day of their, their salvation. And we could rejoice with them. And even as Christians, people who have trusted Christ, I pray, Lord, that we will be obedient Christians. Help us, Lord, to know Your Word, to do Your will, to walk with you in right fellowship day by day. Help us to be a testimony for your goodness. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.